0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple
1: Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, we'll be discussing the short story, Chivalry, originally published in 1992 in Grails, Quests, Visitations, and Other Occurrences.
0: Though we read this in one of Neil Gaiman's short story collections. This was the the collection Smoke and Mirrors, or, you know, if you've got one from long, long ago, the the early 90s, uh, it might be Angels and Visitations. Though this story, I mean, Chivalry is probably one of his most successful stories. So it is also in the new Neil Gaiman Reader. And also, you can check this out on the podcast LeVar Burton Reads and have LeVar Burton read this story to you, which I highly recommend. I mean, I recommend that for any story. If you can get LeVar Burton to read it to you, you should do that. This is one where you can. And we should say too that this was a story that was selected by our Patreon supporters as one of our interlude episodes. This is going to be the last of them. So we will be back to Sandman next month. And I have to say that this is one of my absolute favorite Game and short stories. I'm so glad that we are finally getting to do it. I was actually watching the uh, the vote results come in on that Patreon vote, holding my breath, really hoping this one was gonna was gonna pull through because I just really really love this story. I I feel like this is one that I don't know I read every week or something, uh, you know, all through high school.
1: Yeah, I think it's one that you and I read a lot in high school, and I've revisited since. And then you know, we also listened to. Uh, audio recordings of Neil reading himself and as you mentioned Levar Burton uh, has recorded a, an audio version of it as well that can be found very easily on the internet but it's just a great story um and there's a there's a lot going on but it's really pretty simple and straightforward in some ways um but it also nicely grabs from a bunch of things from mythology and um kind of that underpin a lot of how we interpreted the world having grown up on a steady diet of um you know western mythology as as children, Glenn. Yeah, there's a lot of
0: of mashing up going on here. I mean I guess the, the title of the story, right? Chivalry lets us know that we're we're in for knights or at least something akin to it. And maybe we should just we should just get into it. In fact, uh uh let's uh, yeah let's do that. I, I want to actually start this one by just reading the opening sentence because it's just it's just a great opening line and it is this mrs Whittaker found the holy grail. It was under a fur coat, <laughs> and yeah, I can't even finish that line without yeah. laughing about, it, without chuckling because it's just so brilliant. And, and Mrs. Whitaker, she's she's an old lady; uh, she's a widow, in fact, and and she's in the habit of going to the charity shop every Thursday, which she does when she's on her way home from picking up her pension check from the from the post office. And, and specifically, this is an Oxfam shop, by the way, which is a, a ubiquitous thing in the UK. And Mrs. Whitaker loves to buy. These used paperback romance novels, and then also she likes to browse and occasionally buy uh, a knickknack, and that's really the context in which she finds the Holy Grail under a fur coat. But in this scene, you know, while she's at the Oxfam shop buying the Holy Grail, we also meet Marie, who is seventeen. She she works the register at the shop, and she also reads women's magazines, and she she yearns for uh, for romance. She's yearning for for love in her life. And, um, we should also mention, I mean, speaking of romance, though, of a, a different sort, right? We should mention that this particular Oxfam shop also has a used copy of uh, a book called Romance and Legend of Chivalry by A.R. Hope Moncrief. Uh, that is for sale for only five pence, uh, but Mrs. Whitaker decides <laughs> not to buy it. But all of that, that's that's the, the, the setup. And this is really all designed to let us know that we are, uh, we're getting a, a magical realism story. It's not going to be an urban fantasy story. It's going to be, magical realism, but all of this also cues us to be on the lookout for romance and, and, and romance in both of its, of its
1: meanings here. And so this is, I think are just an absolutely masterful opening. I'm a big fan of that opening line too. It's just, it's so direct um, and to the point, but also just has a, a fun amount of kind of playful humor to it. And I think that, you know, introducing the character of Marie and, you know, it's described that she's going through, she's slipping through a... Uh, a modern women magazine and she's filling out a reveal your hidden personality questionnaire. Uh, but then it, Neil goes on to say that every so often she flips to the back to see what the relative points are assigned to whatever answer she might give before she gives the answer. Um, and I think that for questionnaires like this or any kind of magazine questionnaire, I think we've all done that, right? If you have a magazine questionnaire and you're like, or, you know, I guess the equivalent maybe modernly would be like a BuzzFeed quiz. If you can, jump ahead and be like, well, what does this think that is the value or might mean? Kind of what's, what's, what lever is going to be
0: tripped here? Right. We all, we all know how to make sure that we don't get put in Hufflepuff when we're taking this quiz
1: online, right? That's, that's, (laughs) that's, that's the modern equivalent or
0: the current equivalent of that. Uh,
1: And for those who uh, are defenders of Hufflepuff, uh, please go to (laughs) claytemplemedia.com on the forums and let us know. We know that there are many of you. Um, I have encountered you in the real world. Yeah, it's just that obviously we're all Ravenclaw here, so, you know.
0: Slytherin forever, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I derailed this very quickly, but yeah, you're right. This is a great characterization of, of Marie as, you know, she's just killing time, right? She's just, she's, you know, this it's not a job. She's a volunteer. She's not being paid here. So, you know, there's no sense, uh, you know, no requirement to just fill your downtime when you're not actually ringing someone up at the cash register with some kind of stupid busyness. Like there, you know, tends to be in a, in a retail job, at least all the retail jobs I've ever worked. So she's just reading this magazine, but yeah, it's like, you know she's trying to get the outcome she wants as if there's something at stake so not really treating it like it's a quiz that's going to reveal something to her about herself which is in some sense the kind of design of the thing but but trying to game it uh, so that you get the answer that you want which in fact makes it kind of useless but yeah it's a great characterization of marie we should talk about the grail itself here the the description of it is 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 awesome
1: yeah, so um, the inside of the goblet has a thick – it's thickly coated with a brownish-red dust, which Mrs. Whitaker, after she purchases it, washes out with great care and then left it to soak for an hour. Then she polished it with metal polish until it gleamed, and she put it on her Mano place parlor. So, you know, here we have a kind of a discarded cup. There is the remnant of something uh, from inside of it, uh, the reddish-brown dust in uh, – mythological lore you know that this is the the blood of, of christ um who is has his side pierced during the crucifixion um and so this is the remnants of his blood that over the course of you know almost a thousand years by the time the story is written um if we assume that it is modern day to when it is published in the late 90s that uh or sorry early 90s that uh, uh it's just kind of been sitting there um and It seems fairly unremarkable, just has the fur coat thrown over it and doesn't shine until after uh, she soaks and polishes it, so. Right. Though, though we should be clear, it is, you know, it is metal. It is, it
0: is made of silver. So it's made yes. of a precious metal, which is to say it is not the cup of a carpenter. Right. So this is in contrast <laughs> to, I think, probably the most successful. Uh, well, that's not quite true. The second most successful, maybe we'll say holy grail story of cinema, which is the Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Right. So yeah, not the cup of a, of a carpenter. And Gaiman does a great job, too, of, of introducing the concept of the Holy Grail for, for people who might not know about it. You know, he's got a character here, another old lady who doesn't know about the Holy Grail. And so Mrs. Whitaker gets to say it's the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper and that later caught his precious blood at the crucifixion, which is yeah, that is the story about the Holy Grail, which we encounter uh, in, in our literature, largely in you know King Arthur stories, and hey, that's what we're about to get here. This is an idea that the, the Holy Grail was an idea that was invented in in the Middle Ages. It was invented uh, in in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries by the the poet uh, Robert de Boron, who, who you know lived on the, the cusp of some centuries, as I guess we and most of our listeners have done as well. Uh, which he did in two poems, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and then uh, the poem Merlin as as well. So so the connection here, right? The the idea Idea of connecting, you know, this uh, this cup that, that definitely held some wine, right? There's definitely some wine in the Last Supper in the Gospels, uh, and then connecting that with this idea of of something that caught his blood at the crucifixion, which is uh, which is an invention of the poem, it becomes this stock element in many, but not all, King Arthur stories. The idea of the Grail quest, which is now like one of the you know principal features of of our of our literature. So many of our stories uh, either are modeled on these chivalric rom romances or our grail quests or are are both, right? The elements
1: of this uh, show up in so much of our fantasy literature now. And I mean, it's interesting to me that Mrs. Greenberg, who is Mrs. Whitaker's friend, who it's, you know, receiving from Mrs. Whitaker information about the grail. She's not sure she knows about what Mrs. Whitaker's talking about um, is her response. Um, uh, But the description is that she's small and Jewish and didn't hold with unsanitary things. And it's interesting that then she likens it to the kind of thing you get from a swimming tournament versus likening it to maybe more of a a, a kiddish cup, which is uh, used in some uh, ritual symbolic things that are done for ju- practicing uh, Judaism. So it may be that we're take that she is not necessarily practicing the Jewish faith, or it could just be she doesn't know about, you know, Jesus being uh you know, something particularly to be talking about, uh, if at all. Um, but I think a lot of our view um, of what the Holy Grail might look like looks a lot like the way a lot of kiddish cups, frankly, look in terms of their appearance, um, particularly if they are uh, cast either um, out of silver or a metal that uh, similarly gleams in the way that silver might. Right, the description of
0: the the Grail itself is is something that changes over time, and it is it is based on this this Welsh word actually. I mean, the word Grail is based on a Welsh word that that can mean cup, but doesn't have to. And so, different writers have depicted the Grail as uh, various different types of cups, which I guess is where we get the gag in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where like there's this you know immortal knight who has a collection of cups, and Indiana Jones has to you know figure out which. Which one is the right one? And, you know, don't pick the shiny ones, pick the, pick the wooden one, the humble wooden one that looks like the cup of a carpenter, but it's often been depicted as, as stone uh, in literature and, uh, and in art rather than, um, and not even necessarily like a cup, kind of sort of more like a saucer, sometimes a metal saucer or wooden saucer, or just a bowl, Uh, a lot of options uh, available. But I do like the idea that it looks an awful lot like, I think for us, we would say a little league trophy, uh, right? In fact, I wish (laughs) I had some of my little league trophies then I, I would just try to convince someone that one of them is the Holy Grail. You still only might get five pence
1: for it, though. So it's, it's the downside. <laughs> yeah, fair um,
0: enough. Well, that's all right. <laughs> well, before we get to the, the plot of this story, we should uh, call back to who Mrs. Whitaker is. We should note again that she is a widow. She she clearly misses her husband. I think it's actually really important that she places the Holy Grail on her mantle next to a photograph of her husband that was taken in the, the 1950s. But uh, now we can get to the, the real story here, which is that, The doorbell rings, and there's a knight at the door. Uh, He's wearing silver armor. He's got shoulder-length hair. It's so blonde as to be almost white. And he's got a gray horse, uh, a charger. Uh, and he says that he is Sir Galahad and that he's on a quest for the Holy Grail. But Mrs. Whitaker is not going to let him in without some uh, some identification. And so he has to go back to his horse and get his ID, uh, which it ter- turns out to be a scroll from Arthur, King of All Britons, that verifies that, uh, yeah, this dude is really Galahad. He is on a quest. Uh, there's even a drawing of him here. This on its own, right? This is just absurd and... Delightful. But she then accepts this, you know, as proof of who he is. She she invites him in, she makes Galahad a cup of tea. He sees the Holy Grail on the mantle and he prays before it. And then he asks for it from Mrs. Whitaker. But she's she's not interested. She likes it. She likes it where it is. She doesn't need the gold that he offers her. So Galahad leaves. Though we, we do get a nice detail here about how he shows his horse to the neighborhood children and even teaches them how to how to feed a horse. He does this before he actually leaves. But uh, well, we should talk about Galahad here, right? This is this is not a person Gaiman has invented.
1: No, no, he is not. He uh, is uh, in Arthurian legend, one of the uh, Knights of the Round Table, and uh, the son of Lancelot. Is he not? He is. In fact, that's, that's mentioned here
0: a little bit. Galahad, yeah, he is one of the Arthurian knights who is on a grail quest. Galahad, though, is actually a pretty late creation in, in the literature here. He comes from uh, a mid 13th century prose collection that is known as the, the Vulgate cycle. Um, it's in, it's in French uh, rather than in Latin. Uh, so Galahad is does not exist in Robert de Boron, who invented the Holy Grail. Just doesn't. No one's. No one else has made him up yet. Um, and he also does not exist in the work of Chretin de Troyes, uh, who is the the poet that uh, is usually taught when you take a class. Like if you you know if you took a uh, high Middle Ages class with me, the odds are I'm going to give you some Chretin de Troyes to read. Though actually, I didn't do that the last time I even you know was teaching warrior culture in of the High Middle Ages as we read something else instead. But uh, he's really the go-to. Uh, he has Penguin Classics books, Robert de Baron, uh, I don't think he does, though maybe I should check on that. But uh, this Vulgate cycle and then something else that's known as the post-Vulgate cycle. These are, are two French sources. They're, they're in fact really the two important French sources that Thomas Mallory used when he was writing *Le Mort d'Arthur. And *Le Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, that's really the basis of all our modern Arthur stuff. So if you've seen a King Arthur or movie, if you've read Um, uh, Once in Future King, or, or, you know, seen the Disney cartoon based on that, or read The Mist of Avalon. All of that is really Mallory fan fiction. It's Lamorda Arthur fan fiction. But Mallory was actually writing Vulgate cycle fan fiction in a, just in a different language. Uh, And so, you know, super important for our own modern traditions about Arthur. But in the Middle Ages, you know, most people would not have known who Galahad was. If you, you know, asked a person on the street, who's your favorite Arthurian knight, very few of them would have said, uh, would have said Galahad. But Galahad is, you know, from our point of view, he is one of the few Arthurian knights who actually finds the Holy Grail in the medieval and early modern literature. Uh, the others are, are Percival uh, and Gawain as well, and then also Sir Bors. Uh, Gawain is actually a separate tradition, but Percival, Bors, and Galahad are all kind of working together as a team uh, in most of these uh, most of these poems and, and stories. And it's probably really important to note for like our culture that Galahad is really the archetype of the the paladin right both in D&D terms and in literary terms where you know we think of like superheroes and private detectives as chivalric heroes of you know 20th and 21st century literature and Galahad is really the model for all of those characters so uh if if we don't get Galahad invented in the Vulgate cycle the Vulgate uh, tradition then you know, we don't have, I don't know, Batman. We don't have Spider-Man and Iron Man and Wonder Woman. We don't have any of those people because Galahad is really the model for those types of of stories because he is, he's pure, he's holy, uh, he's a virgin. He prays. He's essentially a monk who happens to also be a knight and whose sole function is to find the grail, which he does both by doing warrior stuff. We're going to get some of that in this story, but also through resisting temptations, the way that monks are supposed to, to do, right? By being good. And so that's where he becomes the template of our superheroes and our private detectives.
1: Right. And unlike his father, Lancelot, he doesn't have like the flaws of succumbing to temptation and doing things that um, may cause the downfall of Camelot, right? Right. Right. And, and
0: that, you know, that sexual temptation is really the big temptation that has to be resisted, uh, certainly in our modern retellings from Mallory and so forth, because, you know, like, look, that stuff's exciting, right? It's, it is exciting that Lancelot, you know, uh, has an affair with Guinevere and almost destroys Camelot. I mean, that is great literature. Very good. We have awesome you know stories about this. I guess Excalibur is probably a pretty big uh, part of this as well. The film Excalibur, which I was not thinking of earlier when I was thinking of Indiana Jones. And then also thinking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but yeah, those are probably the three biggest uh, films that uh, that deal with this, at least in our canon, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, this is the thing. Like, you know, Lancelot is he's the greatest warrior. He's really interesting, but he is super flawed, and and most of these guys end up being super flawed. So uh, it is a big deal that Galahad, you know, is this this paladin figure that he is this pure person.
1: Yeah. Even more so because he, you know, inherited the very good looks from his parents too. So Galahad, you know, very much is, and as Neil Gaiman kind of depicts him here, known to, he's, he's highly attractive, right? Um, so the fact that he would maybe have to work that much harder to, um, maintain his kind of purity because it's not that he, um, would have to work as hard maybe to engage in wooing someone, um, because he
0: <laughs> right, the, uh, the 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 scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which I don't know, we might just start uh, referring to a lot here, but the the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where one of the knights uh, shows up to a castle that uh, a, a bunch of young women live in, uh, and they all want to have sex with him, and he you know has to resist them, uh, and it's you know it's all done for for laughs, it's comical, that's you know that's the point of the comedy movie is to make us laugh, but that is actually I don't know if in in the film that is Galahad, uh, but that is based on something that does happen to Galahad in uh, in some of the the literature of, of you know women throwing themselves at him. So yeah, it's not just like uh, it's not an easy thing actually for him to resist. It is a rough thing that is confronting him all of the time because he had the uh, the misfortune to be born too handsome. Well, we are not done with Galahad yet. I mean, you know, he is going to get the grail eventually here in this story, but we get some some more comedy here about his attempts to purchase the grail from Mrs. Whitaker. So uh, Galahad, he, he comes back and this time he offers <laughs> Mrs. Whitaker the sword Balmung. And Gaiman has Galahad explain that it was forged by Wayland Smith in the dawn times and that whoever has this sword cannot be conquered in war is invincible in battle, is incapable of a cowardly or ignoble act, and is also protected from the treachery of friends uh, and also any poison that is put into wine or ale, though not whiskey. And that's probably really important to, to keep in mind if you ever get this sword. But all <laughs> of this is just awesome stuff, right? It's it's from Germanic mythology, uh, where right all the Arthur stuff so far is really from uh, what we could call French mythology, I guess. But obviously, right, Mrs. Whitaker, she does not need a sword like this. Maybe nobody does anymore, but Mrs. Whitaker definitely <laughs> does not need a sword like this, though she does acknowledge that her husband would have thought it was pretty cool. Uh, so she sends Galahad off again, though not without some cucumber sandwiches and uh, also an apple for the horse. I mean, she's a good host, Mrs. Whitaker. Uh, but before we pause here, I, I do want to bring up the line from this story that has really stuck with me since we were first reading this back in high school 30 years ago, and, and it's about Mrs. Whitaker's church. And, and here's the line. Her local church was St. James the Less, which was a little more, don't think of this as a church. Think of it as a place where like-minded friends hang out and are joyful than Mrs. Whitaker felt entirely comfortable with. And this really just strikes me as like the most 90s line in the whole book. And it
1: it really (laughs) is one that has has just stuck with me. Um, Well, in particular, because um, it goes on to say... Uh, she liked the vicar, vicar, Reverend Bartholomew, when he wasn't actually playing the guitar. Um, which <laughs> that to me just, you know, it's, I, I can just imagine that, uh, the good vicar is one of those folks who not only breaks the guitar out, um, during services, but also just walks around with it. Like if you invite him over for tea, he'll bring his guitar and it's nice maybe not as nice as you know, he thinks it is when he always pulls it out and you know, it, I think all of us have uh, spent time with uh, a guitar guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're very nice people, and I like them a lot. Um, but sometimes uh, we don't need to hear the guitar. And by the way, if you ever think to yourself, I don't know if I've ever spent time with a guitar guy, consider whether you were the guitar guy. <laughs> yeah, the odds are
0: you were the guitar guy if, if you don't know. But I do like this juxtaposition, right? Because this is, uh, in fact, we're going to find out a little bit more about Mrs. Whitaker's backstory in just a, just a minute here. But this is someone who lived through the second world war who is now at the point in her life where the churches are all being run by people who were hippies for a little while and, and now yeah. are now are running churches right and you know this is what going to church for me in the 90s felt like as as well right we had our you know the head minister of the church was was an older person but then you know the new minister who was the youth minister uh well never actually played a guitar was still basically a guitar guy right yeah
1: yeah he You know, he or she Rikers up to a chair and, uh, you know, maybe turns their baseball cap around backwards, pulls like a guitar and just just wants to rap with the kids.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this this really did feel quintessentially of the 90s to me here, though. There's you know, there's a lot of that in these uh, these early stories by by game. And well, at this point. Galahad has tried twice to get the grail for Mrs. Whitaker. And so, right, the rules of storytelling dictate that he's got one more thing he has to do, and then he'll be able to take it with him. So let's just go on. We can get this last bit of it here, the third thing. So this time, when Galahad shows up, Mrs. Whitaker puts him to work in her attic, sorting out some boxes that she stores up there. And while the two of them are doing this, they exchange their backstories, and this is a really fun juxtaposition. They each get a paragraph for this, and we learn that Missus Whitaker met her husband Henry during the Second World War when he was part of the local air raid precautions unit, and he had to let her know that her blackout curtains weren't closed properly. So this is, you know, I mean, it's a meet cute straight out of one of the romance novels that she loves to read, basically, right? And at this moment, they started dating. And that's an absolutely beautiful and heartwarming story, but it is a mundane story. And so the contrast with Galahad's epic and fantastical backstory is really comical here. I mean, and it is played for laughs because Galahad has to talk about how his mother is a witch and his his father is insane, right? As we said his father is Lancelot, but he, he doesn't actually know that. He doesn't even know he's Lancelot anymore, right? So they have very different family lives. Very different backgrounds here. But Galahad also has more stuff to offer. He's got the Philosopher's Stone, which Noah hung in the Ark to give light. It can also transform base metals into gold. There's also an egg of a a phoenix, which is just a cool thing to have. And finally, there is one of the apples of the Hesperides. And this is really the big Item here, but it is also the biggest connection to Sandman so far as well, because the Hesperides are one of these groups of three women from Greek mythology. In this case, they are the nymphs of the evening. Uh, They tend this garden that is full of magical apples. Uh, They're usually described as being golden, though Gaiman here has this apple look like a, a ruby. And the deal with this in this story is that one bite of the apple will heal any wound or any illness. A second bite will restore youth and beauty, and a third bite will grant eternal life. And Mrs. Whitaker is tempted by this, right? This is actually her moment to be the paladin figure, to be faced with temptation. She is tempted by this because she remembers what it was like to be young, to be full of life but she resists this temptation. And she even tells Galahad to, to put the apple away, but she will take the stone and the egg as a swap for the grail because they also will look nice on the mantelpiece and two for one is, you know, that's a fair, it's a fair shake, she says. And I do love this entire scene, but I think that my favorite part is when Galahad casually mentions that these items were not easy to get, which lets us know that he's actually having his own story while we are busy reading about Mrs. Whitaker's story. And, and I, I was just wondering, as I was reading this, Brent, which of these items you actually think was maybe the most difficult to go get? That
1: is a good question. I'm guessing it was the apple just because I, I feel like that there's a lot more of a universal draw to folks either wanting their youth restored or living for other forever or both. Um, so it seems to me that that might be the thing that kind of crosses more boundaries um, and that the philosopher's stone might be, something that's very much desired but kind of hard to locate and the phoenix egg might just be a matter of mm, the right timing of trying to find you know a, a nest uh, but i'm not quite sure uh, w- which of them do you think was maybe the the hardest uh, fight that he had to have to get
0: yeah, I like your way of thinking about it. I should have mentioned, too, that he is nursing some some injuries while he's helping with the boxes as
1: well. You know, he specifically, we're told that he has a cut on his cheek, and he held one arm a little stiffly, which is... You know, it, uh, Mrs. Whitaker has a very understated way of referring to things, so it might be that the cut uh, actually, you know, looks f- fairly deep, and it may be that the arm stiffly uh, is because it's hiding the fact that maybe that there's, you know, some kind of a even compound fracture. It's just <laughs> Galahad has nicely covered it up, so it's not. You know, making too much of a show of itself, because um, that's the proper way to to follow the chivalric principle here, right? Don't don't complain that much about a cut and a broken bone, but um, but that this is the image that that we get that maybe he's he's been through some stuff, but uh, but which do you think uh, maybe got him uh, the messed up arm and the cut on his cheek?
0: Well, the only one of these that inherently has violence attached to it is the phoenix egg right because this is the one where he's actually trying to steal someone else's baby i mean it's a bird <laughs> right and, you know people like people eat eggs i guess right but you know is trying to steal someone else's baby so one assumes he has to do something with the phoenix that is uh, has laid that egg which you know a diversion a clever ruse might work but that might also be where the like uh, the, the gash on his on his face came from as uh, a phoenix claw perhaps but i got the impression brent when you were sort of envisioning when you were setting up your vision of going uh after the the apple of the Hesperides, that you were you were kind of envisioning that there would be competition among other questers is that what you were were getting at there in, in terms of the dangers
1: yeah i was and partially it's just because you know with the grail and some of these other items i just imagine that there are are many people who would be searching them out. And I think it's partially just because, you know, Neil Gaiman has, has taught me as have other, um, you know, writers over the decades now to expect that if there is some kind of a, you know, magical item or totem, it's unlikely that only one person knows about it. There's probably an antagonist to your protagonist. But there may also be a collection of random other people who are also involved. Um, and particularly in the context of the Knights of the Round Table, there might be a whole table full of them, plus the ones that were exiled, plus the ones that were never invited to the table, right? Um, who are all wanting a piece of this either for themselves or to deny someone else just because they're jerks.
0: Yep. I wonder if we could actually go through these these challenges three here and think about them as testing different aspects of Galahad, which is right. That's what Grail quests are about. They have to you have to test sort of every different aspect of the paladin's paladin-ness to make sure that he's good enough to get the get the things. And so you know, I think if we're looking at the the phoenix egg as maybe that being the one that perhaps involves a fight with another you know a, you know a fantastical creature, a monster, uh, but then also perhaps involves some, some person versus nature stuff here. I'm just, you know, I don't know where phoenixes actually breed and lay their eggs and have their nests. But, you know, I'm assuming mountains, there's got to be some mountain climbing involved here, and then possibly, a, you know, a monster fight at the end of it. So that's the the danger there, the, the obstacle that has to be overcome but the the hesperides right i mean these are the nymphs of the evening and we've talked already about how being pure being a virgin is super important to getting the grail so That perhaps is the the real challenge. There is maybe not not competing with like Indiana Jones to get to the uh, to get to the Hesperides, but to actually resist the temptation of the nymphs who are there once you once you get there. But then, yeah, I think I have to envision like you're suggesting, Brent, that the Philosopher's stone. This is maybe where he he has to tangle with Harrison Ford a little bit. That there's actually some competition and like lots of uh, uh, scholars or pseudo scholars are you know looking for clues in ancient manuscripts. following uh, maps to X marks, marks the spot and and so on. So there's a sort of intellectual or scholarly challenge there. I, I don't know if I get because if I were going to turn this into Galahad story, that's probably the way that I would do that. But of course, the real villain of Galahad story here, the
1: real uh, antagonist, I guess that's actually the word you used, is Mrs. Whitaker, right? Well, or at least she's the last guardian. I don't know that she's the antagonist in the way that she is not... But, I mean, I get the sense, though, that, you know, maybe there is a threat to Mrs. Whitaker from someone who would not take such a, 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 a appropriate, I guess is the way Mrs. Whitaker might say, uh, approach to dealing with her. Um Because one thing I like about each of these encounters, Glenn, um is... Galahad shows up and particularly the second and third time he goes about doing chores for Mrs. Whitaker before he even lays out, you know, what he wants or why he's there. He doesn't cut to it. He's very polite. You know, he helps throw, you know, slugs out, um, you know, that she has taken out of her garden and he helps move boxes around her attic before he even gets to, um, you know, here's what it is. It's vi- There's a lot of patience there as opposed to, I feel like I wouldn't have that kind of patience. I'd be like, look, particularly the third time I'd be like, you know, why I'm here. <laughs> I just, you know, fought this bird for an egg, you know, did whatever I had to do to find the stone. And I have this at magic apple. Just, just take, Take all of them and and let me have the cup that you're just using as ornamentation. But Galahad doesn't take that approach at all, right? He he very patiently helps with her tasks. Then he very, like, you know, I guess in a good salesman way, he, he shows off each item individually and then says they can all be yours. Um, and I do want to, you know, in talking about each of these items, it's interesting as we're thinking about the kind of things that they test. And Mrs. Whitaker's own challenges here, right? Um, the Philosopher's Stone is something that can change base metals to gold. So in many ways, it represents riches, although we also get here that when she holds it, she feels something that's akin to serenity. That's, that's the mi- that's the word that comes to mind for her, is serenity. Um, the phoenix egg makes her feel freedom and flight, but also she feels fire. And so to me, that feels more like, on the one hand, the kind of the freedom of flight, but also kind of power, in some ways. And the uh, apple is just kind of the call of youth and being able to then maybe, you know, act on desires that you, you know, you might have associated with that, particularly when she notes that um, Sir Galahad, the most comely of all knights is sitting across from her and it catches her breath for just a minute. Um, um, and we, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the stories, which is that um, when she tells Galahad to, take the apple back she says put that apple away she told galahad firmly you shouldn't offer things like that to old ladies it isn't proper she's perhaps right um (laughs) (laughs) but uh it, it layers on a lot of additional kind of subtext to um the apple and the role that it has um and you know maybe even the implication of what um Uh, A knight who is less honorable than Galahad might be intending in offering an old lady uh, an apple such as that. Right, though,
0: if if said knight were to do that, then uh, he would no longer be able to get the Grail because he would uh, he would no right. longer be be pure. No longer worthy. Yeah, and and Mrs. Whitaker is herself also uh, an occasion, as you're pointing out, for Galahad to enact the virtues that he has 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 you know taken a vow, right, to, to enact in, in particularly these these Christian values of specifically of helping widows and protecting widows, doing nice things, caring for widows. So he's doing that here, and, and doing it without calling attention to it, right? This is not part of the the bargain. As you you say, he doesn't stop by and say, okay, but if I also help you with some of your chores, can I get the grail? That's just a thing he's doing because that's a thing that he does because, well, he's freaking Galahad, right? He is the paladin. He is the person who just does that stuff. And she is not actively out sending him on these fetch quests, though, you know, if this were a role-playing game, that's, (laughs) I guess, what her role would be. He's just going to try to find things that he thinks that she might want. And I do
1: really like, though, that she is having to resist temptations of her own. She is our main character in this story, right? We don't get what is he doing between these things. Um, but also we don't get the virtue really of like knowing what he thinks or experiences when he touches these things versus, um, her thoughts, um, about these things, um, kind of her internal calculus as to what's a fair deal and what's not and what might be of interest and what isn't and what things she is resisting. Yeah. It reminds me less of a like, you know, kind of what we encounter lots of times now in either, you know, either tabletop role-playing games or computer-based ones in which it's just like, oh, go get me X item or, you know, even more so Y number of X item. (laughs) Um, But instead, it's almost like um, the adventure point-and-click games where it's just like, we're not going to tell you how to open this door. You have to figure out that it's a feather that you need, but there's no indication of any kind. So it's a lot more of him being like, okay, um, let me just go get everything that is it nailed down that maybe will allow Mrs. Whitaker to give, because she's not, she has provided no information as to like what would be worthwhile, you know. Um, Perhaps if she was clear to him that it was something on the mantle, maybe he would find something that would go well with the porcelain, like hound sculpture that she has (laughs) and, you know, be like a penguin or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I I hadn't thought about it in those terms before, but but here you
0: Pitch it that way, Brent. I mean, maybe he he has, right? I mean, I think the thing about Mrs. Whitaker is that she is a widow. Her husband, Henry, who you know, she thinks about, she talks about, she's got his picture prominently displayed, and a picture of him in his prime, I I guess. That's who she is, right? She is Mrs. Whitaker. <laughs> that that's what we know about her mm-hmm. and that relationship is yeah it's what it's what defines her and so what would actually go next to this picture of henry on the mantelpiece is perhaps the feeling of serenity and a bit of fire a bit of passion right that that's that's what goes up there that's what does accompany actually that picture of her husband i i hadn't thought about it in that way before
1: I mean, I think that the philosopher's stone is maybe something that would not interest her nearly as much as other things in some ways, because although she does get the, you know, feeling of serenity, um, which, as he said, it has certain other properties other than, um, transmuting base metals to gold. But, you know, she is, she's an older woman. Um, she is, you know, kind of nearing the end of her life in some, most likely. And she has no heirs. She's a widow. Um, She's not leaving behind a spouse. She's not leaving behind children or grandchildren. So it's not a matter of like, oh, well, you know, if I had lots of money, then I would have someone to leave that to. Like there's not, so she's not worrying about securing her own future. And she's not worrying about securing the future of any descendants of hers. She's just, seeing out, you know, the twilight years of her life um, in the matter that she wants to.
0: Exactly. And I think that's really where the resisting the temptation of being young again uh, is is really important because she is given this opportunity to actually – essentially turn back the clock and go get all those things she could be young and and uh alive and and zestful and beautiful uh, again and get another husband and maybe actually have some kids or you know whatever and then she might actually at that point yeah want to transmute some base metals mm-hmm. into gold and so that's the real temptation that she resists which I I think you know is, is rooted in her her marriage to to Henry right that that's who she is she doesn't want to do over she doesn't want to go have another life. She's had a life. It's been a great life. And what really defines her life right now is simply that she misses Henry. And, you know, I think we we have to assume we're, we're, we're really led to believe here, right, that uh, Mrs. Whitaker is a devout Christian. She knows about the Holy Grail. She she goes to church, even, even if she doesn't like guitar guys so much, she goes to church. So yeah, I think we have to assume that she believes that she is going to be reunited with Henry when she dies. And so there's a sense in which that's what she's really looking forward to she's waiting for that. And so in the meantime, yeah, she's got some nice things that can sit next to the picture of Henry on the, uh, on the mantle. And you know, that's, that's a, a kind of heroism, I think. And I, I really like Mrs. Whitaker.
1: Yeah, no, I think she's great. And I think the fact that she, of the three items, the really, the only one that is the temptation for her is the apple and her ability to then resist the apple. And the other two, she's not going to use their magical properties to exploit them and to enrich herself. So, like, her accepting those is not her falling to the temptation of either, you know, greed or power, right? But we also – we get a great bit right here at the end of the story – or. Almost at the end of the story, um, with their last interaction where we, we get a lot more of Mrs. Whitaker, who's kind of been a comic foil for Galahad <laughs> up to this point. But we get this great bit where Neil explains, you know, as he leaves, he hugs her and she shooed him out the kitchen and out the back door and she shut the door behind him. She poured herself another cup of tea and cried quietly into a Kleenex while the sound of hoofbeats echoed down Hawthorne Crescent on wednesday mrs whitaker stayed in all day on thursday she went to the post office to collect the pension so it's we see here though like the toll of kind of the inner turmoil of her considering the apple um and also then probably you know it, with it remembering her life And knowing and accepting kind of where she is relative to her lifespan. And she has decided to not accept the thing that either would restore youth or restore youth and make her, you know, immortal, right? She's accepted where she's at and she's crying. And it could be that those tears are not merely tears of sadness. They could also be kind of just tears of even kind of joy that sometimes we get with some memories, and it's just kind of being overwhelmed a little bit with the emotion of the moment and looking back and the fact that she has to take a full day after that, kind of to, you know, we don't know whether she, you know, spends the day crying or spends the day resting or we we don't know, but she spends the day to herself breaking from her normal routine,
0: right? Right before she gets back into her routine, she she dusts herself off and 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 goes back to her her normal routine here at the end. And in fact, right now that Galahad he's got the Grail and he's 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 gone away with it. Right, we've we've really come nearly anyway to the end, but there are some bits of wrapping up that we need to do. Uh, we'll we'll finish up Mrs. Whitaker's story in just a second because we should go actually get Marie's story here in the in the middle of the story. We actually learned that Marie, who yeah, you know, we should spend a while. Well, since we've mentioned her, she's the 17-year-old who works the, the register at the charity shop. Uh, we learned that Marie is the one who had directed Galahad to Mrs. Whitaker's house. And now when Mrs. Whitaker returns to the Oxfam shop at the end of the story, she actually learns that Marie has left. Uh, she's left with Galahad. And so There's another story happening here while we've been reading Mrs. Whitaker's story. There's some rom-com about Marie and Galahad (laughs) that's been going on where I guess, you know, Galahad has had to remain pure remain virginal remain alone uh, until he got the grail but now he's accomplished that quest so now he actually also gets to have uh, a, a, a romance uh, of, of that sort the same way that mrs whitaker has had with with henry right so galahad actually kind of end, ends up getting the same thing that mrs whitaker has had i mean assuming that it's a happy ending for for galahad and marie but i really love that detail
1: I think it's a really nice detail and kind of – it's also a nice detail um, for – we don't get a lot of it, but Marie's story. um, And a good plug to volunteer Um, (laughs) because you never know when, uh, you know, the most comely of all knights might come in and uh, after interacting with you repeatedly decide to come back for you with their horse and you ride off into the sunset together. So. (laughs) Um volunteering is good, but it, it's kind of nice to give a resolution because you know he he had he's he set all these things aside so that he can get the holy grail and then once he has the you know the song grail, then he his quest is done he he can move on and he can in the sense of the romantic like chivalric tradition, he also can then have like a romantic love we're we're left to believe right. Right, he's completed his
0: quest. He doesn't have to be a paladin forever. I mean, I assume he's still going to, you know, help with the garden slugs and uh, moving the boxes <laughs> around and so on. But yeah, he doesn't have to be the paladin forever. He's completed the quest. And whatever, you know, in this story, we don't know, right? But. Uh, so so whatever the Grail is actually for, whatever the Grail does, right? He's accomplished that. Of course, in most of these uh, Arthurian stories from the the Middle Ages and from early modernity, the Grail is wrapped up, or the you know the possession of the Grail by King Arthur is, is wrapped up with uh, the the health of the the realm, the safety and security of the realm, and uh, the prosperity of the realm as well, and so on. So you know now he's made sure that that is is good to go. He gets to retire from that essentially and have a real, a real life, the same type of life uh, that Mrs. Whitaker had. And though Mrs. Whitaker's story is still not over here, we actually get a little coda with her, you know, after she finds out about Marie, she's still browsing the Oxfam shop, which now has somehow acquired Aladdin's magic lantern. It's the, you know, the one that will release a genie that's going to grant three wishes. And that, you know, that sounds pretty cool. Mrs. Whitaker almost buys it, but then she thinks better of it and she puts it. Back Right. And here again, she's resisting temptation. She doesn't
1: need three wishes. And one of the things that I don't know if we've highlighted enough, um, but it it comes to the fore here again, is that Mrs. Whitaker knows exactly what these things are. She knows what the Holy Grail is. (laughs) Um, She knows exactly what Aladdin's lamp is. Arguably, she maybe even without Galahad explaining them would maybe know what, you know, the philosopher's stone and the apple and the, like, the phoenix, like, she maybe already just knows that. She just has an encyclopedic knowledge of these things. Um, or maybe the, uh, you know, the romance novels she's read, you know, give her the necessary <laughs> background on these things that you can, can learn things. Cause, you know, we, we can learn a lot from fiction. <laughs> so I, I like that. She is aware. We don't have that Mrs. Whitaker is an old lady, so therefore she must not know things. It's like, no, she's an old lady, so she does know things. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's somewhat comic. But also, again, this is one last time where she actually is resisting temptation. Because if she were to take the lamp, when she has nowhere to put it, it would be to take Aladdin's lamp and to have that genie. And... She doesn't want it for the genie. And she, again, because she doesn't have children or grandchildren to pass things on to, she doesn't want it for the sake of her will so that, you know, at one point her kids discover there's a way to get to Narnia, right? Um <laughs> Instead, it's just, does she want this to display on her mantle because she's literally not going to use the power from it? No. And so to take something she doesn't need, she might as well leave it, which... I do want to say, Glenn, um, you know, you and I, I think, have an have affinity, as probably many of our listeners do, for particularly used bookstores. Oh, yeah. And particularly used bookstores in the time in which this story was written, um, in which – and even, like, you know, used goods shop and, like, uh, Oxfam shops, pre-kind of widespread internet, and, you know, this is pre-Ebay and everything, like – you never knew what you would find. And it really was like walking through, in which a lot of it was just like stuff that you don't care about. But sometimes you'd find just the thing you want at insanely low prices, right? Because <laughs> it'd be like, oh, I I've this is a book I didn't even realize I wanted or didn't realize that I'd find, and and here it is. And I found myself sometimes going to bookstores where I'm like, oh, I'd like to have a copy of that. And then I say to myself – No, I kind of want a younger version of me who maybe will come in this shop later today to instead find that book for that cheap price. And so I'm not going to get that for me, particularly things that I end up finding myself wanting to buy multiple copies of or, you know, I I think frequently I had that thought recently with uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, right? Where I went in and I'm like, oh, there's a copy of Dune here, you know, paperback, and it's pretty cheap. And I'm sure I can find a person who hasn't read Dune I can just give this to as a gift. And then I thought, no, I want the next, you know, the next Brent or Glenn to or Brandon or Valerie to like – be able to maybe come in and find this copy of Dune that they'll pay $1 for. To to pass
0: that thrill of discovery on to somebody else, which is something that certainly, as you say, defined... Our, our youth our childhood and adolescence of whether it was the library or the used bookstore uh, to or the new bookstore that we had in town as well right <laughs> to to be doing that browsing to be doing that discovery I mean for us yeah it was mostly books but yeah someone in this town needs the lantern needs the wishes you know to to heal somebody a family member you know do good things though maybe some bad things too I don't know there's some spin-off stories or, or sequel stories there yeah. to be to be written which is I don't know as a thing I would invite listeners to uh, to pitch to us pitch
1: the sequel to this Well, even more so what I'd love to hear from our listeners is what do you think, if anything, is like, you know, the... The, the magic item of some property that draws all these other items to this one shop.
0: <laughs> yes, right. I mean,
1: is it just that they're buying all this stuff from Indiana
0: Jones? <laughs> like, he just you know, but obviously not for very much. Or did Indiana Jones, I don't know, did he die and leave all his stuff to this, this Oxfam shop? I don't know. But uh, yeah, lots of questions we could ask here. I mean, it is a magical realism story, so we're not really supposed to ask those questions. But, you know, it's fun to ask those types of questions. So let's think about this, you know, sort of the metaphysics of this Arthuriana business here. Like, how does how does Camelot and, and all this other Arthuriana stuff, how does all of that exist and intersect with our modern world? And, and, you know, there are a lot of possibilities here, but I'll just go through a few that I thought of, Brendan, see what you think of them. And you've probably got some that I didn't think about. But, you know, so are we meant to understand that Galahad has maybe traveled through time to get here Or is it that Galahad is immortal and has been doing this for like 1,500 years? Has he traveled from some other dimension, like some other version of Earth or something like that? How
1: is this actually functioning, do you think? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, and I'm not sure. I've got kind of competing views in my headcanon here. On the one hand, part of my headcanon wants to be his purity and the need for this quest to be fulfilled has somehow managed to keep him alive this long. But then part of me also wants to just, you know, view it as even like a doctor who timey, why me all times are connected <laughs> or places simultaneously exist in a multiverse that like he opens and he, he rides, you know, grizel, his, his charger, he rides him through portals between different locations and time periods, which helps also mingle together all of these different mythological worlds in which you can have the Phoenix egg and magic apples and the philosopher's stone and aladdin's lamp all of those things can simultaneously exist and be true and many other things um well i want to say more on that but let me see actually what your thoughts are before i go further
0: yeah, well, I do have some thoughts on that, though. I, I want to actually address the thing you said just a minute ago about the, the, the you know, the mashing up. I guess right because because is doing his hallmark, you know, mashing up of of mythologies with the story layering here, and it's really the thing that I love most about this story because we've got this, uh, you know, Arthuriana stuff is really the principal story cycle here, but he, but Gaiman has that intersecting then with both Greek mythology and Norse mythology, and then here at the very end, right, we've got this story from the arabic folktale tradition and those just all exist in the world together and at the same time we can see that are all, the characters involved in the story are all having their own stories, even if we are only getting, you know, one of them. We're getting Mrs. Whitaker's story, but Galahad's off having his own story. Marie's having a story. That's the thing I really love the most about this, the way that Gaiman weaves all of this or layers all of this together. But we do like to play around with the idea of, okay, but like how? How how would this actually be, be real? My sense is of, of how Galahad is here is actually that he is... Uh, um, well, immortal isn't quite right, but uh, but my sense is that Galahad is a historical person who has just been on the quest for a thousand plus years as he's searching for this grail. And the reason I think that is um, actually coming from one of the really important uh, 19th century traditions uh, about Arthur. Uh, Arthur was really revived as a tradition in the 19th century after having been left alone for two or three centuries. You know, like Shakespeare didn't really, you know, he never did anything with Arthur, for example, which even though he did something with like every other aspect of British history, for example, right? Uh, It just wasn't something that that people were all that interested in after, really after the Reformation, I would say. In, in Britain at any rate but it gets revived in the 19th century by the Victorians and in particular uh, Tennyson wrote a, a really big poem called Sir Galahad which g- really gives us the impression that Galahad is going to wander the world forever questing for the Holy Grail that it's almost um, uh, that this immortality he has is almost a kind of curse he's he's, he's this wandering knight who's Always going to be on this quest and will never achieve his goal, and it's kind of an awful fate uh, for him. And you know, we know that Gaiman loves some Tennyson. He he was invoking Tennyson uh, in only the end of the world again, which we did uh, in our our last uh, last Sandman break as well. And so I don't know. I was kind of liking to think of this story as Gaiman uh, giving that poem a happy ending.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot to that, Glenn. In fact, what I was thinking of also was. With all the things that Galahad has to then for hundreds and hundreds of years given up as he continues his pursuit of the grail, it is kind of, as you said, a curse. And he is kind of, you know, stuck on this this path. And it is not until it is done that he can kind of do what he wants to do for himself now, right? Um, While as Mrs. Whitaker is in some ways the chivalric knight who has already finished her quest. She can do whatever she wants. And so she is free to also turn things down. She doesn't need any of these items, any one of which could certainly help her on her own quest, right? Either to live longer or be more powerful or, you know, be resistant to poison and be able to cut enemies down with that sword. Like she doesn't need those things because she's already found and satisfied whatever her quests were. Um, and so they're nicely kind of matched, which I guess kind of plays off nicely also on the, the temptation that Mrs. Whitaker, her, you know, the last temptation of Mrs. Whitaker, the story might as well be called, right? Um, <laughs> where, you know, she thinks about if she were young again and then notices, you know, how attractive Galahad is and then thinks that it's not proper for him to be even making such an offer, right? So, um, and it's not necessarily even that this is, you know, that Mrs. Whitaker needs, you know, Henry was her grail, whatever, you know, it, cause we, it's not to say that she is only defined by her husband or the man in her life. Um, I don't think that the story is sinister in that way. Um, but it's that, you know, her, her, whatever things she wanted to achieve, she achieved. And she is, you know, quite comfortable continuing on. She misses her Henry. Hopefully she'll, you know, be reunited with her, him probably in her view. Um, but we don't even see that played up that much. But it's just kind of this, in some ways, Mrs. Whitaker is Sir Galahad set forward well after he has completed his, you know, quest. If like, you know, Marie is the Henry of Sir Galahad, if you will.
0: Right, I mean, if you're not fighting or questing for the ability to have a nice garden, to have a, a family, right, to know love, then like, what are the quests actually for? Although the quest, of course, and this quest in particular, really is to create a world so that other people can have that. There is a martyrdom uh, aspect to the paladin character, of course, uh, in, in these, uh, you know, all these chivalric heroes, right? That's just why they're also, you know, in in our literature, of course, especially our, our contemporary literature, so uh, so troubled, so so traum- And while you were pointing out some of the comparisons bred between Mrs. Whitaker and Galahad, I just started envisioning them in a kind of buddy cop story where, you know, (laughs) Mrs. Whitaker is two weeks from retirement. Galahad is the, uh, you know, the, the, the rogue, (laughs) the, the rogue cop who's suffering from PTSD. You know, it's, it's the exact plot of Lethal Weapon, except it's these people instead of Riggs and Murtaugh. And I desperately want to watch that. I desperately want that in my life. So I hope
1: someone will, uh, will write that for us. I I don't know if I care if Mel Gibson stars in it or if you find someone um better, um uh, but I would love to see Danny Glover as Mrs. Whitaker.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would too. Yeah, I do not. I do I do not need Mel Gibson in this film at all. But yeah, yeah Glover absolutely. Yeah, I would totally totally want that. Well, I think if we are. Uh, <laughs> casting our own Neil Gaiman fan fiction <laughs> remakes of Lethal Weapon. That's a sentence I never thought I was going to say. But uh, for doing that, I think
1: uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of chivalry and what exactly, if anything, is drawing all of these items to this particular <laughs> Oxfam shop.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of fan fiction to be written or spin-off fiction to be written uh, about this story. We would love to love to read that for sure. And please do check us out on patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Your support keeps all our shows on the air. Also gives you access to all sorts of bonus episodes from across the, the network. So we really hope you'll take a look at that. And so next time, we are going to be back with Sandman. It's uh, time for Season of Mists, which is something that I know that that you, Brent, at least have been really, really eager to to get to. And I'm really, really eager to, uh, to hear your thoughts uh, about it as we revisit it together. But until then, until next time, pleasant dreams.